Welcome to Deal Closers with Annette Tali, where we focus on the deals. Our guests are real estate closers who will share in detail the whole process from finding a deal to closing it, as well as strategies and tips to help you do the same. Here is your host, Annette Tali. Welcome to another episode of Deal Closers. I am your host, Annette Tali, and my guest today is Kim Taylor. Welcome, Kim. Hi, thank you, Annette. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you because I think there is a lot of uh, questions about um, securities, syndications, and JVs, and uh, you are a uh, securities attorney, and I think you're going to be able to clarify a lot of the questions that investors have when they are starting, especially, and they don't know if they are breaking rules or if they are going the right way about it. So let me tell you a little bit about Kim. Uh, she's a nationally recognized corporate securities attorney, speaker, and author of number one Amazon best-selling book, How to Legally Raise Private Money. She is the founder of Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, and InvestorMarketingMaterials.com, whose purpose is to provide quality legal advice, offering documents, and professionally designed marketing materials for clients nationwide. King has been responsible attorney for hundreds of securities offices. She routinely teaches subjects related to legally raising private money in front of groups ranging from 50 to 1,000 attendees. Welcome, Kim. Thank so you. let me ask you, how did you get into real estate being an, a, a securities attorney? Well, so I had always been interested in real estate. Uh, I actually went to a real estate training event with my husband. We were learning how to buy multifamily. He'd been uh, buying single family and duplexes and things like that for a very long time. So uh, we went to a multifamily training event and uh, there we learned about syndication. I had, was a, a pretty new attorney at the time. I was actually practicing real estate law, um, homeowner association law and uh, you know, general real estate litigation at the time. So all of a sudden I, I, my eyes got open to this whole new world of uh, securities law and syndications and laws regarding raising private money. Uh, so I, I, you know, continued on with uh, the training, got into a coaching program. My husband and I started looking for multifamily properties. And then uh, we went to the um, private money boot camp that this trainer was offering. And uh, while we were there, I met an attorney that was teaching the class and, and uh, at that time said, you know, gee, I'd love to work with you. And uh, we started working together and uh, worked with him for many years. We started our own practice together in California back in 2010 and uh, I worked with him up till 2016 and then I decided to move to Florida and open my own practice so so that's I've been doing this pretty exclusively since 2008. Excellent wow that is interesting so you started investing and then you decided that you could you know have a, a business uh, doing this. That's right. That's right. Yes. And my husband and I actually syndicated a property, a multifamily property in Ohio, and we just sold it uh, in 2019. So we had had that uh, for about nine years. We, we had some friends that invested with us in that deal. And uh, so we've had some firsthand experience as well. Awesome. All right, so I wanted to talk to you today because I think a lot of investors have the question, when is a good idea to do a JV, a joint venture, versus doing a syndication? So, so I wanted you to, to 
uh, let us know what's your opinion on that. Yeah, well, so there, there's a lot of nuances to that, but uh, I'm happy to explain them. So really a joint venture is where everyone stays in charge of generating their own profits. So they have to be actively involved. Um, the difference between a joint venture and security is, is in a security, you have uh, an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits based on the efforts of the promoter. So, or, you know, or based on the efforts of third parties. So the investors are really passively investing. They're relying on someone else to generate the profit for them. That's typically going to be the people that are actually raising the money. And uh, so in that situation, you're selling securities. And when you're selling securities, now you are falling under the jurisdiction of securities laws and you have to follow the follow a certain set of rules. If you're not selling securities, so you don't have passive investors, you don't have people that are relying on you to generate a profit for them, then you're in the realm of the joint ventures. You don't have to follow securities laws. So that's really kind of the distinction is whether you have passive investors or you have people who are actively involved in generating their own profits. So what type of uh, <clears throat> jobs uh, are make you go from passive investor to a joint venture position? Like what type of things people need to make sure they are doing instead of just providing the money? For a deal? Yeah, so, so they should really be involved in, uh, you know, more than just decision making, right? So they're more than just a voting right. Uh, so you've got to be, you know, actively involved in, um, you know, choosing contractors and deciding, uh, you know, which colors and which brokers are going to sell the property and uh, which offers to accept um, and those kinds of things. So it's more than just having a voting right. Um, so, you know, you just have to think of, you know, kind of write down all the different jobs that, you know, and all the different hats that somebody wears when they're buying property and divide those up amongst all those people that are contributing funds to the deal and then make sure that they actually participate and do them. Right. Like for example, signing the contracts with a, a contractor, like participating on those kinds of things, would that qualify? Well, or at very least, uh, you know, you're getting bids from multiple contractors. So go over that with all the, uh, the JV partners and make sure that everybody is in agreement. And then at, you know, at that time, you know, get everybody's input and then perhaps take a vote. But, you know, make sure that you're actually getting their valued input on that. Um, I was in a joint venture and I, um, we, we had some investors that, uh, put it up the money and then there were two of us that were doing all of the work and um, We never took control of their money. They made they managed the bank account the whole entire time So we would get on the phone with them and say, okay, here's the bids we have here's you know Here's here's who here's who we've decided to hire and then they would actually be the ones who would pay them um, So, you know, that's one way to make sure that you're really not taking control of their money and they're not relying on you to generate the profit They're actively involved in the process Right. What about having a joint account? Yeah, but you've just got to be, yeah, joint account is better than having them put the money into your account, which is what you would do if you were, uh, you know, doing a syndication, you would actually create a company that would create its own bank account. And then the investors would invest into that company's bank account. 
Um, and then you would have, the, as the manager of that syndicate, you would have the control over that bank account. So yes, if you had a joint bank account where, you know, maybe you're asking them to put the money in when you need it versus just having them, you know, put in $100,000 that you're going to decide how to spend. Uh, so maybe it's more like, you know, they fund it as the, as the needs arise. And that means that they had to have been involved in those decisions about uh, what those things were going to be spent on. And is there, is, it, is there a requirement to document these activities? Like how, you know, if, you know, God forbid you get in trouble, I am assuming that you got a proof that, that you were participating in this uh, joint venture and you were not just providing the money. So do you need to uh, record or have meeting minutes or how can you protect yourself? Yeah, the more you can document what you do, uh, that's always, always going to become your defense if there was ever a challenge to it. So how these how problems in these situations arise is that, uh, you know, nobody's complaining until the deal loses money and then everybody figures out, oh, gosh, I didn't think I was going to lose money on this. What can I do about it? They see an attorney. And the attorney starts asking them a bunch of questions and asking them, well, you know, how did you find out about this deal? How were you involved? Because they're trying to determine, was it really, did you really sell them a security and not a joint venture interest? And if you did, then, you know, that's their aha moment. Uh, you know, oh, we got them because uh, they can say, well, you know, let's look and see if they followed securities laws. Did they give you a disclosure document? Did they do any filings? Did they, uh, you know, what, what kind of finance? financial qualifications do you have? And, uh, you know, was there some kind of an exemption they followed? So if none of those things are present, then you really have to have the documentation to show how these people actually did participate. And uh, meeting minutes would be an excellent way to do that, you know, where you're uh, recording every time who was on the call, what was discussed, and then what decision was made, and then what action is going to be taken. And if you did that every single time and keep track of all of those records, now you've got something to show that no, 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 they were more involved than that. They were not passive investors. Right. And I am assuming that when it's just a joint venture between two people, it's a lot easier. And there's going to be probably a lot of email communication that you can use, you know, like when you are deciding stuff. Is, is email uh, an acceptable way to yeah, that's, an, that's another way to do it is to send confirming emails. You know, lawyers do this all the time. They'll talk to somebody on the phone and then they'll send a confirming email. Hey, you know, pursuant to our call today, this is what we discussed and here's the decision that was made and here's the action we're going to take. And so if you get in the habit of doing that every single time you have a call, then uh, you will you'll have those records that you need. It's the problem is that you know a lot of people try to go recreate those things in the eleventh hour right before there's a, you know a hearing or a trial, and and that's where it becomes a problem because you don't have that trail where you can go back and say no look at here's the you know hundreds of emails that went back and forth between us and here's where we said okay and we said yes this is or you know whatever and they approved it they agreed to put in money so you've, you've got that defense and you, you just you absolutely need that right yeah you know i have a partner and we're doing a joint venture and it's out of time so for me you know, I'm providing the money and she's doing the work, but we constantly make decisions together. Uh, so, you know, I am in charge of doing all, I'm an architect, so I the design stuff is kind of like my thing. And, you know, I send her the colors for the paint. And then, you know, if there is a problem, she asks me. So we are kind of like, even though I am out of town, we are still making decisions together. And, you know, now that you're saying like, we have a lot of stuff on chat, you know, like we have a WhatsApp account or a messenger. So I'm going to start, 
doing it on, on an email. I think that's a little bit more official. Well, that or use uh, something like Slack where it actually records those conversations. Okay. Yeah, so that you, you have a trail and you don't lose that. I mean, even with, with text, you can, you can convert those, but uh, it, it's a cumbersome process. So, you know, maybe consider using some other kind of a system. that. Will... Right, yeah, like we decide on materials, like, look, I'm gonna use this, but we found this one that is cheaper, like, you know. So that's, that's awesome. All right, so um, definitely if you, we know now the difference between doing a JV and then doing a, a securities offering, which is a syndication. So what about uh, when you raise private money. I think, you know, when you are, um, you're like, I, I hear a lot of people saying that they are just getting private money for a family member. Um, how does that play into this? Yeah, so, so this is where we really kind of shift the discussion and start talking about what is a security and, and how do we deal with that if we are selling securities. So, um, if you if all of your investors are not going to be actively involved um, and, and I do want to before we move on from talking about joint ventures I do want to talk about the fact that there are some tax consequences for joint venture partners that are not as favorable as they would be if you brought in fa uh, passive investors uh, because you're um, all of the income that joint venture generates is always going to be taxed at ordinary income for all of the uh, joint venture members and for a um, passive uh, investment like a syndicate, those passive investors can actually enjoy um, some capital gains rates on some of their equity that's generated long term in a project. And that is going to be where the bulk of their money is ultimately going to come from. So, it, you know, it's something to consider is that you, know, you always want to have a conversation with not just an attorney to find out if you're following securities laws or, you know, doing it the right way, but also with your CPA to find out what the tax implications are going to be for you and for your other members. So, so shifting over to the discussion of what is a syndicate. Um, so as a syndicate, you know, we're in that situation where you, ha you have an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits based solely on the efforts of the promoter. Um, well, that it, it fall, falls within the, the definition of a security. It's it, when you have those four elements together, that's called an investment contract investment contracts are within the definition of securities. The other thing that falls within the definition of securities that a lot of people don't realize are promissory notes. And um, while certain notes may be excluded, a lot of the short-term notes that people are, are getting from investors if they're doing um, fix and flips and uh, you know they're only using money for a very short period of time, um, or they're repeatedly uh, relying on investors on on promissory note investors to generate their, you know to support their business so, so if you're repeatedly borrowing I call that a serial borrower you know your business relies on repeatedly borrowing money from private investors then uh, you also are selling securities um, so you need to, to so what does that mean well so if you are selling securities so either in the form of notes or investment contracts those are the things that always pertain to real estate investors for the most part um, then you need to follow securities laws. And that means you either need to have to register your offering before register the, the this uh, thing that you want to offer to investors in exchange for their money before you start making offers um, or sales. Okay, so you either have to register your offering uh, or you have to qualify for an exemption from registering. 
So the registration process, that's going public. You know, that's the same thing that Google and Facebook and you know, all the public companies do. They you know, submit a pile of paperwork to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they go back and forth you know, for a while and uh, make sure that everything's in order and okay. And then finally they get the blessing of the regulatory agency that says, go ahead, you can sell these to anybody, you can sell them publicly, um, you know, your, your project is sound. Uh, well, that process is extremely expensive and it takes a very long time. So you're not going to do that for a real estate offering because you won't have the time to do it and you don't need to go through that kind of an expense. And instead of that, you're going to qualify for an exemption from registration. So there's exemptions both at the federal level that are uh, offered by the SEC and then there are exemptions at the state level if everything's contained in one state. You know, since we're both in Florida, if everything is in Florida, all of your investors, all of your properties, um, all of, uh, you know, you, everything is contained within Florida, then you can follow a Florida securities exemption. Um, if you're going to be crossing state lines and, and <clears throat> properties are going to be purchased outside the state, investors are coming from outside the state, then you're going to want to follow the federal rules because the federal rules are going to keep you from having to comply with a bunch of individual states' laws. Um, not only the property has to be in the same state, but the investors that are investing have to be in the same state? 80% of the assets acquired by a company have to be within that state to qualify under the state securities laws and all investors. All investors. So the securities laws apply to investors within their jurisdiction. So Florida securities laws apply to Florida investors. Federal securities laws apply to U.S. investors, not non-U.S. investors. Um, so you, you have to make sure that you're picking the right exemption. So, so these exemptions all have a specific set of rules. Um, you know, each one is a slightly different, but they're largely the same, but, but there are some minute differences. Um, so the federal rules uh, are the ones that we most commonly talk about because that's what a lot of people are doing. They're going to these, uh, if, they're, if you're buying commercial property, you're probably going to these nationwide events. You're learning how to do it, maybe somewhere that's not in your state. You might be looking for properties that are outside your state and you're meeting investors from all over the country. So you're bringing them into your deals. So most of the people use the federal rules and the most common federal rules um, that people use are Regulation D. Rule 506. Regulation D, Rule 506. Now, Rule 506 has two options underneath it. One is 506B, B like boy, and the other is 506C, which is C like cat. So under Reg D, Rule 506B, um, this is the original rule. It's been in place since uh, the 1980s. This allows people to bring in an unlimited amount of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors. Um, the investors can self-certify that they uh, meet the right financial qualifications, that they either are accredited or sophisticated, and um, they, but, you can all, but you can only have 35. And you can't find them through any means of general advertising or solicitation. So that's the no advertising rule. That's the friends and family exemption. So again, that's uh, an unlimited number of accredited investors and up to 35 non-accredited investors. Well, accredited investors are people who have over a uh, million dollars net worth, excluding any equity in their primary residence, 
or they have uh, $200,000 a year income if they're single and $300,000 if they're a married couple. So I just think of this as a one, two, three rule. So it's either a million dollars net worth or if they're single, 200,000 income or if they're married, 300,000 income. So if they meet those qualifications, then uh, they're accredited and then you don't have to count them when you're raising money for your deal. If they don't meet those qualifications, then they are not accredited. Um, now you have to talk to them about their financial background and make sure that they're sophisticated enough to understand the merits and the risks of the offering, whether it's appropriate for their portfolio. Usually this requires somebody who has uh, more than just some savings and a job. And they will have had to have been through some kind of training about the thing that you're offering them, um, or they would have had to, have, you know, maybe they have a finance or a business degree, or they have some other, you know, way that they've learned how to do this, you know, they've been in family business for a very long time or something. So, so you have to ask them, you know, what other things have they invested in? Are they heavily invested in other things? You know, how's that worked out for them? Do they own business? Do they have they owned real estate before? Um, and just try to make sure that they actually are sophisticated and then are suitable to be in your offering. Um, so, so that's, you know, that's where this, you know, whole thing of, you know, you can't offer the deal just to anybody right now. Um, if you're going to do the 506B and you want to include non-accredited investors, then you would have to um, go through the suitability questionnaire with them to make sure that they actually are suitable. Um, if you want to do 506C, okay, 506C allows you to freely advertise your deal, but you're restricted to verified accredited investors only. So they can't self-certify by filling out your subscription agreement and telling you that they meet the qualifications. They actually have to provide proof and, uh, you know, for their financial statements or um, their uh, tax returns or, or something or their income statements showing you that they meet those qualifications. So let me ask you something. So on regulation, the 506B, yep. the in boy, um, mm -hmm. you can have 35 sophisticated investors or non-accredited, and then the rest can be accredited. So the ones that are accredited, do they still need to provide you the proof or on, under this exemption, you don't need, they don't need to provide proof? No, under 506B, they actually can self-certify. So you give them the questions and say, here's the definition. Tell us if you meet one of these definitions and they'll tell you. Right. What about the, um, I think I, I also read that you need to know these people before you can offer them the, um, the securities. Yeah, that's a really great question, Annette, because um, so the way that you prove that you didn't advertise is, is to be, you know, you have to be able to show that you had a substantive pre-existing relationship with these investors prior to making them an offer to invest. And so the offer happens at the time you're telling them about the deal and about the opportunity. Um, you know, you could have a company and just say, oh, well, you know, we're always looking to meet new investors and we, you know, we'd love to get to know you. Uh, you can do that. But uh, with the point where you say, okay, now I have a property, now we're raising money, that's when you're making an offer to them. So you have to be able to demonstrate that you already have this pre-existing substantive relationship. And the SEC has, has determined that the uh, pre-existing relationship has to predate the offer, right? So you had to know them before you had this offer to even provide to them. And you had to make sure it was substantive, which means that you actually have had a conversation with them about their suitability 
prior to making them an offer. So also, you need to kind of know already that they are sophisticated and that they understand how this works before you even offer to them a security or an opportunity. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There's an article on our website. Um, if you go to syndicationattorneys.com in the library, there's an article there. It's called Determining Investor Suitability. And it actually talks about how the SEC views this and, and what they believe is necessary. And, and then we've got a link to some example questions that you can ask your investors. So if you don't have deals right now, this is a really great time to be talking to your investors about whether they're accredited or non-accredited. Um, you know, and, and right now we're in very uncertain times. It's entirely possible that somebody that was accredited, you know, several weeks ago is not accredited right now. Um, so you will have to have some conversations with them before you start making offers. Right. And how do you recommend people that they document these relationships? Because I'm assuming that you are going to have to have some kind of uh, proof that you knew them before. So maybe like some records of conversations or how do you, you know, can prove that these relationships were before predated the offering? Yeah, so that's, that's a really great question because the other part of all of this that the SEC says is not only do you have to do these things, you have to have a record-keeping system to prove that you did them. And so that's you know, going to be a, a CRM, a customer relations management uh, software. A lot of people just start out keeping these things on Excel or you know, just keeping telephone conversation records um, or meeting, meeting records. Um, you can do that if you want to, but, um, you know, in this day and age, most people are using some kind of a CRM. Uh, there's some, you know, simple and cheap and even free ones out there that you can always start with. Uh, for a long time, we used to use Insightly, which is a Google app. And uh, at the time, it was free for two people. So it'll, it'll get you started. And then, you know, you can always add on or, or expand or go to a different program later on when you, when you feel like you need to. Um, there are also a lot of companies uh, coming into play right now that have uh, software systems or investor management systems where you actually can keep track of all of those conversations and keep track of deals and your investors can log in and see deals. I don't usually recommend that you go that route until you've got a couple of deals. Yeah, because it could get expensive. I'm assuming once you start. Yeah, well, you're going to pay. Yeah, you'll be paying a monthly a monthly subscription rate and maybe some setup fees to get those things up and running. And and then you've got to have somebody who's uh, you know constantly maintaining that. So yeah, I just recommend that you know to consider that expense after you've got a couple of deals. Um, you know, you might want to do some demos and know what's out there so that you know what your your ultimately your ultimate goal is. But in the meantime, start simple. Just keep track. Keep records. Um, if you were ever to get a letter from a regulator or from some uh, attorney looking for, you know, information about how you knew this person, uh, then you want to be able to provide those records and say, you know, here's when we met, um, here's the conversation we had, here's, you know, the follow-up call that I had with them, and uh, here's how I continued to keep in contact with them after that, and, uh, you know, really be able to, to document how that relationship evolved. Right. And you can even record uh, conversations like a Zoom call, like we're doing right now. Well, sure. You could do that if you want to. I don't think that's absolutely necessary. I think it's more important that you just, you know, keep a note, you know, the date at the time, the, you know, who was on the call, what things were discussed and, uh, you know, what, what you learned. And, you know, just really making sure that you document what the SEC thinks is necessary to show that that uh, relationship existed. 
And, you know, I like to think of it like a dating relationship. You know, you don't want to meet somebody at a you know social function and then turn around and ask them to marry you right away. You want to, you know, you're going to gather their contact information, maybe have a you know conversation, see if there's some common interests. Um, you know, follow up with that, have some uh, private time, either, you know, live or, or in a phone call, see if you want to further the relationship, see if you like each other, you know, realize you're inviting someone into your life for the next five to seven years. If you're doing commercial properties, if you're doing, you know, um, maybe your residential properties, maybe it's only a shorter period of time, but uh, still the wrong person invited into your life can create havoc and uh, you know make you very uncomfortable. So you need to just be cautious about who you're who you're dealing with, and and make sure that you like them, and that they like you, and and uh, it seems like it's a good fit. Right. All right. So let's get back to the private money question. Right. Like we know what securities are now, and so how does the private money lending from your family member play into this? Yeah. So if you're, you know, if you're doing isolated loans, you're borrowing money from your parents or your brother or somebody like that, and you're just doing it one or two times, you know, nobody really cares about that. It, you know, it's not like they're going to sue you if you don't or complain to a regulator if, if uh, you know, something goes wrong with a deal, but you do want to be careful. Um, and you also need to realize that the person that you're dealing with might not be the person you end up dealing with in the end. What if something happens to that original investor and now you're dealing with their spouses or their kids and they might, you know, they don't know you, they're not going to be as kind to you, they don't have the relationship, um, they don't care, they just want the money. So they're going to put pressure on you in any way they can to get it back. Um, so just, you know, make sure that you know you know, how, you, how you're going to handle that. And the more people, so, you know, maybe if you're just borrowing money from an isolated transaction from one person, not a big deal. But if you're going to go out and you're, you know, I, I have a lot of people that come to me with these fallacies and they're like, oh, well, I don't need to do this because I'm only uh, raising money from friends and family. Well, that Regulation D Rule 506B exemption that I told you about is the friends and family exemption. So that they still have to qualify under that. And what that means is that you have to give them the right um, disclosure document. If you're including non-accredited investors in your deal, you're required to provide a disclosure document under Reg D Rule 506B, that's a private placement memorandum. The SEC prescribes what goes into that private mem placement memorandum. It's similar to the content required of a publicly traded company. Um, so they, they actually specify what goes on the front cover, what goes uh, immediately after the front cover, what kind of uh, legends and, uh, you know, kind of uh, cautionary statements do you need to put in that document? Uh, you need to disclose who all the people are that are going to be handling the investment and making the investment decisions and handling the funds. Um, you know, so, so that's very, if you're bringing in non-accredited investors, then that's, you know, some of the things that you're going to have to contend with. Um, you're also going to have to have a subscription agreement. So this is very customary in the industry that you would have a subscription agreement where the investor, this is where the investor kind of certifies to you that I did read all the documents you provided me. I do understand that, that there's risks uh, involved in this investment. I do understand that I could lose my money. I can afford to lose the money and I'm going to invest anyway. So with this subscription agreement and with your private placement memorandum, with those two things together, these investors take on the risk of their own investment. They assume the risk, shifting it from you to them. 
without these things, you bear all that risk because you're obligated when you're selling securities to give the investors all the information they need to make informed consent. And it's all the material facts, including what kind of risks are associated with this, this offering. And uh, if you haven't done that, and then they can come back and say, well, they didn't give me all the information I needed. I would never have invested if I'd known that. And now the risk is back on you. So it's and like your, your liability insurance. It's a liability insurance policy for you and your investors are going to reimburse you for it. So, you know, when, when someone comes to us and they want to raise money from private investors, you know, very typically they'd be raising from 500000 to, you know, $100 million, you know, but mostly people are raising, you know, maybe, uh, you know, $1 to $10 million or something like that. Um, but as little as 500000 um, When they come to us and want to do that, then, um, you know, we start talking to them about, who their investors are going to be and what kind of uh, disclosures, what, what are their financial qualifications so that we can help them pick the right exemption and then we can guide them on what the rules of that exemption require and then they can do what's necessary. Okay. So what about, you know, flippers, people that are constantly uh, borrowing money, but from sometimes from the same two or three people, but they are doing it constantly. Is that an issue? Well, so it depends. Are these people holding themselves out to be private lenders? Are they actually, um, uh, you know, hard money lenders or something like that? If they're hard money lenders, the onus is, is more on them to make sure they're complying with lending laws than it is on you to make sure you're complying with securities laws. It's when you're dealing with private investors who aren't in the business of loaning money that uh, that's when you need to really be thinking about these securities laws. Okay, and is there a number or of investors, let's say, once you have more than three investors in a yield, in, in this deal, it's not a JV anymore, it's a syndication. Is there like a number thing? I, I usually say that if you have more than three or four investors, that it's probably not a, really a suitable for a joint venture. So you're really at that point looking more at doing, setting up a syndication or with passive investors. And the reason for that is you get too many people trying to make decisions and there's not enough jobs to carve up between all those people. So now all of a sudden your compliance becomes very difficult and you end up, you know, really having a syndicate. You just called it something else. And, you know, if something goes wrong with that deal, then, then you're at risk. Right. Okay. Excellent. Um, so if you have more than four people, then start thinking about a syndication. Um, yeah. I am just thinking about like small projects. Like if you are, um, you know, you're buying, let's say, uh, here in South Florida, it's expensive. So even when you're buying a small building, you know, it could be a million, you know, like you're buying just, uh, I think I saw recently it was like an aid unit and it was like nine 900,000, mm -hmm. you know? So it seems not worth it for that little amount to do a syndication, you well, know, but yes and no. Okay. So if your ultimate goal is to start doing bigger deals, joint ventures are not giving you the track record. You need to do bigger syndicates. So if you want to do syndicates, then you should start out doing syndicates and you should just go bigger. Um, it is, it's, it's right now the securities laws are a little difficult for the smaller investors. Uh, you know, for people that are raising three or four or five hundred thousand dollars, 
because the costs are a little bit prohibitive to do the syndication and to comply with the syndication uh, requirements. There is actually some proposed legislation right now that the SEC just came out with a couple of weeks ago where they're uh, proposing to to some certain remedies for that, but we're going to have to wait and see what happens. That's still um, several months away and, you know, who knows all that could get suspended now with the current uh, coronavirus situation. But um, yeah, you, you've just got to be, it, your best bet when you have these, these deals is just to talk to a securities attorney and kind of lay out what your overall long-term business model is and then think about how does this particular deal fit in with that business model and what can we do to um, you know, make sure that you're on the right track and, and not getting astray. Um, and, and again, thinking about the fact if you're characterizing it as a joint venture, everybody gets taxed at ordinary income rates, that's an extra 15% tax for everybody. Versus if you're going to be um, setting it up as a syndication, then you could set it up so that um, you know maybe the, the income from cash flow is always going to be taxed at ordinary income rates, but the income from eventual sale when you realize the biggest benefit uh, could all be taxed at capital gains rates and you could save a significant amount of tax money. Wow, that's a really good point. So when you have a joint venture and you end up selling the property, you cannot, capi- you cannot do a capital gains? Uh, on joint ventures, you may not be able to. So you're going to have to seek, you know, talk specifically to your CPA about how that's going to work, but you may not be able to. And, and especially if you're not holding it long enough, you know, so you've got to make sure that, you know, the, the, you're doing the right things, structuring it correctly, and then holding it long enough and, uh, you know, making sure that your CPA understands what's going on. So they're not mischaracterizing it. So you get uh, taxed incorrectly later on. Right. Is the price of doing this documentation, does it differ to do it, let's say, for a $5 million uh, project to an $800,000 um, offering? Or is it the same? Because when, like, let's say you are doing an $800,000 syndication, um, you know, you're going to have maybe, I don't know, five investors versus you do a $5 million and you're going to have 20, 30. And that share of the cost will be divided into 20 people versus just five. So is there yeah. a difference? So unfortunately, it's not the number of people. It's really based more on the financial qualifications of your investors. So if we go back to uh, the rule 506B, which is what most people start out doing, um, with the rule 506B, if you only had accredited investors, you're not required to give the, the investors the private placement memorandum. Now, you still have the obligation to give the investors all the information to make informed consent, and that's what the private placement memorandum does. But if you just have a very small number of uh, you know, three or four or five accredited investors whom you know very well, then uh, you know, maybe you'll decide that's worth the risk and you'll go ahead. You'd still want to do a subscription agreement for them. Uh, you still have to have whatever thing they're investing in. So that's going to be a company with some kind of operating agreement. That operating agreement is going to have to have the right tax provisions uh, for those investors so that they can enjoy those uh, capital gains rates. Uh, so, you know, you, you just have to, we have to know what it is you're doing and, and be able to figure out how can we do this, at, you know, the, the uh, most cost effective way. All right. That's, that's very interesting. Um, you know, because it's not about the, the amount of money, but I guess the offering itself. So, it, it, you know, each case is going to be different. 
Yeah. So for every time you're raising money, you're always going to have, all right, how am I raising the money? And then what are the investors investing in? Um, you know, you could do a promissory note fund, right? Where your investors are not investing in your company. They're, they're just buying promissory notes. But if you're repeatedly doing that again and again and again, then you might want to have the private placement memorandum and the subscription agreement accompanying that so that you're protected in the event one of those deals doesn't pan out. And when you're deciding on how you're going to use private lenders in that way, then you can say, well, you know, I'm either going to borrow money from people, I'm going to pool it all together, and then I'm going to decide how it gets, uh, gets invested. Or you would be matching investors with specific properties and then recording their interests against those properties. Um, so there's lots of choices and lots of decisions. So that's where, you know, the, when we have our initial free 30 minute consultations. That's what we're trying to do is figure out what is it that you want to do? What, uh, you know, what kind of documents would you need to do that? And, uh, you know, what kind of costs would that be? Yeah. And I, I also recently learned that in a syndication, you don't have to necessarily offer an 8% preferred return that you could, you know, just do a percentage of the, the, the gains, I guess. Um, so it could work as a JV, uh, with your investors, like if you are just giving them a percentage of whatever it's made on the deal, um, then it kind of works like a JV, right? Um, but yeah, it's it's really still syndication. You're just you're, you know you can for for every you know for every syndicate you have to decide. All right, what am I offering investors, and and what you know, am I going to give them some kind of a preferred return, or am I just going to do a straight split, or am I going to do a preferred return plus a split? And, uh, you know, and then does there come a point where once they've reached a certain cap uh, on their returns that we then, you know, change the split or something like that. So um, that's called a waterfall. Um, when we're drafting operating agreements and uh, private placement memorandums, if you're, if you're using a company for people to invest in, then those are the decisions that we would help you think about and, uh, and try to decide. Um, the only thing you want to be cautious of when you're doing a straight split is that you want to make sure that the people who are providing the services, that their portion of the split only comes after these investors have been made whole. So, um, you know, when you eventually sell the property, you want to make sure they get their money back before you do any kind of a split, um, because otherwise you could create a tax situation where you could become taxed on whatever they've, uh, you know, say, say you're doing a 50-50 split on a deal and they're putting up 100% of the money and uh, everything's a straight 50-50 split no matter what, uh, you could get taxed on 50% of that, uh, that raise during the first year of operations and you don't want to create that situation. All right. So you always want to make sure your interests as the service providers are subordinate to the investors getting their money back and, uh, you know, and, and sometimes getting a return. Yeah, I was I, hearing what you're saying. I was just thinking that if you're doing a very small uh, syndication and you're doing it for the tax purposes, so you, you know, you can take advantage of the capital gains. Let's say you only have like, you know, five people, six people, and that you can just, instead of doing a preferred return, you know, because they are going to be putting a lot of the money as well as you, like if you put some of the money, then you can just like divide it equally after, you know, these uh, expenses have been paid. 
and the money, the investment money has been returned. And then it's, a, a, you know, they basically they make money if you make money and they make as much money as you make. The more money you make, the, the more money they make instead of just the preferred return and then the split at the end. Yeah. And so, you know, the way to make that work is that you've got to be able to show the investors with your projections what kind of return that should uh, equate to. And if you can show them that they should be getting somewhere around a you know six percent or more return during the years that you have the property, then uh, you know, and then something uh, boost at the end that gets divided over however many years you've had it to to up those annual returns. If you can do that, then and show them that hey, maybe you're going to end up making a you know twelve to fifteen percent return. They should be they should be happy with that. But you do have to show them those projections and then. Uh, you know, when you're when you're setting up these deals, it, whether it's a joint venture, whether it's a syndicate, you've always got to think about three different things, you, th three different sets of numbers you have to provide to people. One is going to be what kind of acquisition expenses are there? You know, the purchase price, the closing costs, uh, any kind of uh, rehabilitation costs, um, any kind of fees that are going to any of the people that found the deal or put the deal together or any of that. So you're going to add all that stuff up and that becomes, uh, you know, here's how much we're getting from the bank and here's how much we need to raise from investors. So that's called your sources and uses of funds. You add up all the sources of funds, you add up all the uses of funds, those two numbers need to match and that's what determines how much you're going to raise. So you always have to calculate that. The second thing you've got to calculate is how long are we going to own this property and what's going to happen that's going to increase the value and, uh, you know, are you going to be sharing cash flow or are you just going to be splitting profits at the end? You've got to show all of that. And then uh, if it is something where you're going to be holding it for some period of time, then you have to also show what kind of proposed exit strategies are there. You know, how much value do you think you will have added at some point in time, maybe five years? And, uh, you know, what if you sold it at the same cap rate that you purchased it at, what uh, would the uh, benefit be and what would the equity be that would be shared amongst people? So always think of those three tables. And when you're presenting them, you usually do this in some kind of a property information package. Um, then you're going to, you know, tell the story in the order that it occurs. You know, what do we need to buy the property? How is it going to operate? And what is the eventual sale, uh, you know, sale expectations? Absolutely. This has been an amazing uh, show. Thank you for clarifying all this for us. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add that relates to uh, syndication and, 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 you know, raising money. Um, otherwise, please tell us uh, where can people find you? Yeah, I would just invite people to go to our website. Uh, in the library, you're going to find a ton of resources. Um, I have written the book. If you kind of want it all condensed in one place, you can uh, you can get the book there. Uh, you can get a free ebook there, or you can buy it on Amazon. It's how to legally raise private money. Really, just kind of lays out a lot of the things that we talked about today. Um, becomes a great resource for you to just kind of keep handy. Um, it's got a lot of good reviews. That that's one way to do it. Um, the other, and, and it will be coming out on Audible within the next couple of months. Uh, so we're working on that right now. But uh, right now it's available in uh, soft copy, um, Kindle, or for free at our website if you just want the PDF. Um, but there are also a lot of articles. Um, I write a lot of articles, one or two page articles, so they're not very hard to read, plain English on uh, all different aspects of syndication. We also have free monthly teleseminars. 
where we invite somebody, uh, usually a guest speaker, or else I'll lecture on a topic, and uh, we'll teach you something about syndication. Um, we actually have one coming up later today at noon. Um, if you want information about that, uh, send an email to info at syndicationattorneys.com, and, and we'll shoot you the link for that. Um, but uh, yeah, you can sign up for our newsletter where we announce those free monthly teleseminars. And today we're going to be talking uh, to uh, a guest who's going to teach us how to get uh, family offices to invest in your syndicate. So that's going to be a really important one. But we record all of those and we post them on our website. So we've been doing it now for almost three years. And so there's a bunch of those on our website as well. So you can And the website is, is it uh, Syndication Attorneys? Attorneys.com. Um, I would also encourage you to visit our affiliate website at InvestorMarketingMaterials.com if you're interested in creating some marketing materials for your company. Um, we can help you there. We have professional editors and graphic designers that do that work. Amazing. And you can also follow her on LinkedIn and in Facebook. That's right. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. All right, guys. This was amazing. Thank you so much uh, for adding so much value. And I think people are going to now uh, understand a little bit more what are securities and, you know, how to uh, go about this uh, legally, which is uh, very important. Thank you so much. Thank you, Annette. Uh -huh. Bye, -bye. Bye, everybody. This was Deal Closers with Annette Talee, brought to you by Talee Investments. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Our goal is to provide amazing value on your real estate journey. Connect online at www.taleeinvestments.com, where you can find this episode and more. Did you like this episode? Subscribe, like, and share.